I would like to echo um, also a thanks to you that are here in this room and those that are joining us online for your faithfulness over these many, many months. You know, the command of not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. You have been faithful, uh, whether showing up here in person or online. Um, I'm so grateful for your commitment. Um, so here we are. We're two weeks out from Easter or two or three weeks out from Easter, still thinking about Holy Week and the resurrection and may that never leave us, right? But we are now stepping into the story of David. Uh, Pastor Gus got us started last week and we're taking a little extra time with David. You know, David's name is mentioned, believe it or not, 600 times in the Old Testament and 60 times in the New Testament. So David's kind of a big deal. And so looking back uh, at uh, recapping kind of the story up to now, as you well know, Saul was the king of Israel. Israel had to be like everybody else and they wanted a king, God gave him a king. And that went okay for a while. But Saul kind of started going downhill and uh, the nation of Israel was really paying a price for his poor leadership. But as God was have it, it would have it. You know, God always has a succession plan. He always is filled with mercy. When we mess up, he's a merciful God. His mercy is new every day. And so he gets Samuel to visit the house of Jesse, where David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. Now, he was the most unlikely one to be selected. Of course, he had a bunch of brothers that were far more looked on the outside more qualified. But what God was looking for was not outward appearance. He was looking for what was in the heart. And uh, God saw in the heart of David someone who had a heart for him. Not a perfect man by any means, right? You know? He could knock down Goliath with one stone, but with one look at Bathsheba, he would be the one that would fall. There were times when he would lead armies into battle and have great victories. But there were times when he could hardly lead his family. There was a time when he was really compassionate, when he thought about who he could show kindness to and showed kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and invited him to come and dine at his table. And there's times when he could be flat out cruel when he ordered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front lines to be killed. So he was human, just like us. But we can learn from his story, and we hope to do that today, because stories are important to us, these stories. Paul said in Romans that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Well, this is a story that, you know, we all love. It's the story of David and Goliath, right? David faces a giant. And as we get started, we realize that we too face giants, right? We have giants in our lives. It might be a set of difficult circumstances that you are currently experiencing. Maybe it's unemployment. Maybe it's some real serious health issues. Maybe you're struggling, as we see many struggling with anxiety and worry and depression. Or maybe it's a relationship you're in at home or at work or, or at school that just seems so overwhelming to you. 
Maybe it's a lifelong addiction that you've tried over and over and over to kick, but it still keeps kicking you. Maybe it's a, a debt snowball that's just grown bigger and bigger and just, you just feel overwhelmed by. Maybe it's regrets. You know, maybe you live with, oh, I wish I would have. I wish I could have. You know, those will never move you forward. They will always keep you paralyzed in the past. But regrets can be giants. Maybe it's resentment. Maybe it's facing an unwanted divorce. You know, the list goes on. But as we get into this story, I would ask the Spirit of God just for, for you personally to maybe identify, maybe there is a giant. And we want to learn about that. So let's dig in to the story, shall we? Um, I'm turning to 1 Samuel 17. I have a brand new Bible for Easter. I'm so excited. It's got nice big letters so I can read it. <laughs> so 1 Samuel 17, if you'll turn there in your Bible or on your device. And we'll start by reading in verse 1 to kind of set the stage for this story. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Ezekah in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the other side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a context to this face-off. Um, if you remember, Joshua, under the leadership of Joshua, the children of Israel went into the land, and their job was really to drive out the inhabitants so they could occupy this promised land that God had given them, that land filling, filled with milk and honey. And, and by and large, Joshua got the job done, drove out most of the inhabitants, but there were pockets of resistance that remained within the land. And those pockets of resistance over time started to grow. You know, the Hittites and Parasites and all those ites. But the ones that were the most dominating force were the Philistines, the Philistines. They had migrated from what is known today as some of the Grecian islands to the land of Israel. And they were powerful. They had a military power and presence primarily because of their skill and craftsmanship when it came to working with metals. So obviously, they could make and provide for soldiers, you know, all kinds of armor and weaponry, which gave them the upper hand as they continued to expand. They were pro politically powerful in that they had five major cities within the land that they had established as strongholds, and they were a united force. And so now Israel is feeling the, the scrunch. They're, they're living in fear. And so here we are. <laughs> they're living in fear. I can't help but think of this setting to think about where we are as a culture right now. If you came in this morning, you might have noticed that the flag is at half-mast again, okay? Again. I can't think throughout the last year how many times I've seen that flag at half-mast. 
the things that are happening within our country, within our culture, squeezing God out. And what do we see when we squeeze God out? We see violence. We see division, right? And I can't help but think of that's where we are. And the charge for us is to be the church rather than the culture having an influence on us, for us to have an influence on this culture that seems to not care about who God is. But gang, guess what? We gotta start with our own giants, okay? Before we go trying to take everybody else out, we need to deal with our own giants. So that's what we wanna do. So that's kind of the setting. You know, in some of these battles in those days, instead of you know, having a huge bloodbath, armies would kind of agree to, you know, pick your best guy and we'll have them duke it out, decide you know, who's the winner. And that's exactly what is happening here. The Philistines picked Goliath, right? And that was Israel's job to find somebody, which nobody was stepping up to the plate, to, to get into the ring with Goliath. And so that's what we see happening right now. So there was, uh, let's take a look at uh, David's Goliath, all right? His opponent. Beginning in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you are servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath, big drink of water. There's kind of been debates about actually how big he was. Six foot nine, nine foot nine. We're not sure. Some would say that uh, he had some kind of a medical disorder that caused him to keep growing. Um, some would say that he came from the tribe of the Anakin that just grew large people. Whatever the case was, he was a big guy, physically big. MBA would have loved to, you know, get their hands on him, right? He was big. And he was well armed, right? Uh, coat of armor, you know, covering his body to protect him. The coat itself weighed over 100 pounds. And the spearhead on the end of his spear weighed 15 pounds. I can't imagine getting hit by a spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. That would be pretty nasty. But his biggest tool, if you will, of warfare was his intimidation, right? I defy, send me somebody down here. And it caused Israel to be afraid, to be, to be scared. I mean, they had Goliath phobia all over the place. It kind of reminds me of somebody else by the name of Satan, right? 
who worms around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, striking fear. By the way, if you're thinking about what your giant is, think about, and here's a clue, something you're afraid of? Is there something that causes you to try to just lose heart? That's a good indication and a clue that that might be the giant you're facing. So let's look at Goliath's opponent, shall we? Young David, starting in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep, father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token for them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, he left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions, and he went. So what do we know about David? Well, he is the son of Jesse, and that's worth noting. Do you remember weeks back when Pastor Sean was teaching us through the book of Ruth? Remember that story? You know how God... Uh, used Ruth to marry Boaz, and they had a baby named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. So Naomi had a great-great-grandchild named David. You know, we've been studying, you know, one, one story, one scripture, one savior. Here we see this beautiful unfolding plan of God's redemption, just working its way through the bloodline of David and eventually of Jesus. It's worth noting, God has a redemptive plan for sure. So what else do we know about David? Well, you know, the guy was really faithful in the little things. He actually was working two jobs at the time. One, he was taking care of his dad's sheep. That was his main job, right? Before he was anointed, he was caring for his father's sheep. And he did that really well. In fact, even when he had to leave his father's sheep, he always made sure that he had someone to cover for him. But his second job was a musician, kind of a music therapist, quite frankly, because there was this king named Saul who was going crazy who was having these mental breakdowns, and David would come by his side, play his harp, and soothe and comfort him. That was the second job. He did that faithfully. But now he's got a third job. Dad says, I want you to take some bread and some cheese to the front lines, and I need a report back and see how your brothers are doing. David does it. You know, there's something, isn't there, about being faithful in the little things, right? Just 
going to work each day, taking care of the kids, those little things, those little things are important, especially as, as God continues to use us in our lives for the benefit of others. It's not about the big things, it's about, it's about the little things and being faithful in them. Also we see here about David is, boy, he sure had some strong convictions about who God was. If you'll take a look down in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and take away the reproach from Israel? And listen to this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David saw, he heard, and spoke up. Wait a minute. Who is our God? You know, David obviously had a pretty huge opponent here. He, <clears throat> he had other giants too, other opponents, like his older brother Eliab. When David kind of speaks up, his older brother, who's quite jealous because he wasn't picked to be the next king. Now, Eliab, this is verse 28, his elder brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab, his anger kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you come down to see the battle. Right? So he's got a jealous brother he's contending with, Right? And David goes, what do I do now, right? Can you imagine? That's a little brother. Now what did I do? But he also faces a skeptical king, King Saul, when David says, you know, I'll take this guy on. In verse 33, Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. So he's got a jealous brother, a skeptical king. And David pipes up and says, but you know what? I look back and there was a time when a lion was attacking my sheep. And I got on it and I went after that lion. And when that lion came after me, I grabbed him by the beard and I took him out. Same thing with a bear. David realized, you know, God's got this. David was reflecting on past victories. Gang, that's really important as we face our more recent giants. To look back, to, to remember the times when we were up faced against a difficult situation, to remember that God got us through it. Our memory is important, especially as God comes and, and helps us in moments of great crisis and great challenge. And David was remembering that and explaining that to Saul. That is not to say that, that David was without a strategy, right? So what does he do? He goes down by the brook and he grabs five stones, sticks them in his shepherd's pouch, and he's got a sling. 
let me tell you, I did a little research on these sling things, and I actually made one, because I just kind of want to know the feel of that, what that was like. Hey, those things were used in warfare, in ancient warfare, and they are incredibly deadly. The centrifugal force and shepherds were incredibly accurate. Someone said that getting hit by one of those stones is like getting hit by a bullet of a 45 caliber bullet. So David had a skill, but he goes into this battle with this weapon, but there are three lessons from this story now for us to learn from his experience as we face our giants. Lesson number one, the giant in our lives must be faced in order to be defeated. The giants in our life must be faced in order to be defeated. In the 40th verse, here's what we see. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. He faced the giant. If we're going to defeat a giant, we've got to face it. We've got to name it. Maybe it's a really hard conversation you've been trying to avoid with somebody. Right? You got to face it. Maybe it's a credit card debt that's just kind of gotten so out of hand. It comes a point where you got to go, oh my gosh, I can't just throw that in the mail. I've got to look at it. I've got to face this giant. Or maybe it's an addiction that's grown over many, many years, and it's time to say, you know, I got to face it. I got a problem. I got a problem. You know, fighting giants, our giants, are often not just a one time and it's done. Sometimes it's a long process, isn't it? David would defeat this giant, but there would be many other battles coming after that that he would have to face. One is King Saul who was on his case for years, chasing him all over the place. And then many other battles as he would gather his army around him. There would be battle after battle after battle. And so for us as well, sometimes facing our giant is not just a, oh, great, face it and it's over with. Sometimes it's a very long, drawn-out process. But here's the deal. Got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere. Got to face it. Face it and name it. The second important lesson here is that we realize that the battle is the Lord's. I'm reading in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give me into your hand. 
Eugene Peterson says, you know, about David having a heart after God. He says that God, that David had a God-dominated imagination. A God-dominated imagination. And in Psalm 18, one of David's psalms, you get a little picture as to what was on David's mind about God. Listen to these expressions. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He rescued me from the strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. For you saved the humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And I love this verse, verse 29, Psalm 18. For by you I can run against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me a shield of your salvation. You equipped me with the strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. David had a God-dominated imagination. He believed God as a warrior and would be there to support him. Can't help but think of Jesus, though, in this moment, because there was no greater giant than sin and death, right? Jesus faced that giant. We just celebrated that a few weeks back, the death of Jesus, the burial and the resurrection. And here's what Paul says about that out of Romans 8, which is kind of like the hallelujah chorus of Romans. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed interceded for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution, tribulation, distress, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah. So in these moments, when we're face to face with a giant, God gives grace. I was listening to a song, I haven't heard it in a long time, by Buddy Green called Grace for the Moment. I learned that he was here at Northland once. I bet he sang that song. Grace for the moment. And you know what that is? That's when someone's facing, you know, the report, the test results from a doctor saying you have terminal cancer, right? That's a giant. And that God gives this unusual, incredible peace in the midst of that bad news. As painful as that is, 
and gives you a peace that passes understanding. That's grace for that moment. You know, there's not this huge supply of grace and God just gives it all at once. He gives it out when we need it in that moment. It's grace for the moment, for that hard conversation that you're about to have. It's grace for the moment. Well, the third lesson is we have a responsibility to take a step of action. We have a responsibility to take a step of action, and that's what David did. David put his hand in his bag, this is verse 49, and he took out a stone and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in his hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took out a sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. <laughs> I was um, going into Panera's on Friday and opened up the door, and who's there? Standing right there is J.T. Altman, longtime Northlander, one of our shepherding elders, uh, who's been here forever, for a very long time. And I so appreciate JT and his wife, LaDonna, uh, just, you know, just faithful people. Uh, and, and JT's a bit of a prophet, so I said, okay, this is a divine appointment. <laughs> and if you, by the way, if you have not read LaDonna's article in the new Engage paper about the history of Northland and where we've been and where we're going, Get a hold of that, it's wonderful. I so appreciate that. So anyway, we're sitting there having a little chat, you know, and uh, as JT always has a good word, right? So he says, hey, John, uh, this is a quote I just was ruminating, was looking at by Dallas Willard. It says, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. Let me say that again, grace, is not opposed, is opposed to earning. We don't earn grace, but not opposed to effort. What does that mean? That means that we have a responsibility to do something. We don't sit back, okay, Lord, you got this. We do nothing. We were talking about this. We thought, you know, when the children of Israel got this manna, God sent this manna from heaven. Well, it, there wasn't room service, you know. They had to get out of their tent. <laughs> They had to go gather it, right? When the children of Israel were faced with a high tide at Jordan River, they had to move forward. They had to step into that river. And that's the nature of faith, isn't it? It requires some action, right? Abraham, I want you to go to a land that I'm sending you. Abraham had to pack his bags. He had to start moving in that direction. No, I want you to build an ark. There's Pastor Rob. <laughs> hey, you got to go get some wood. You got to chop some trees down. There's some effort involved. Absolutely. Same thing with our giants. Same thing with our giants. If it's a snowball debt, it's probably a good idea to say, I better get a financial planner. We need to look at this. <laughs> we need to sit down and look at the numbers, right? Who likes to do that, right? Um, maybe, you're, maybe you're really struggling in your marriage and it's time to say, you know, we need to go get help. Marriage 911 or a marriage counselor, we need to do something. Or maybe it's a, 
It's a long-term addiction. And it's time to say, you know, I need to go for some help. Go to CR. Go to AA. Go to, go to somebody to get some help. Take a step of action. In 1988, I was down in South Florida uh, pastoring a little church down there called Pinewood Bible Chapel. I was only 10 years old. No, not really. <laughs> but at any rate, and we were studying that morning uh, David and Goliath. And there was a sweet couple in our, in our church, uh, Judd and Joyce Scolton. They were the sweetest people, godly people, loved the Lord. They would go on mission trips to Guatemala and translate for doctors, just precious couple. And they had a daughter named Mary, and Mary was, um, she had struggled a lot uh, with drugs for many, many years. We just told the story of David. Stories change lives, right? A week later, she got arrested and had a kind of a kind of Jesus moment. And, and in that moment, and just shortly thereafter that, she wrote what you're about to hear, Mary's Giant. I was a lot younger when I first met my giant. He was so young-looking, so innocent in appearance. Only lovely, positive thoughts accompanied, and there was no fear for me associating with my giant. He was such a joy. I would meet my giant on happy occasions and weekends to celebrate life. I thought of my giant often and met with it whenever I could. It helped me forget my discomforts and pain. Later in life, we spent time with each other more often, and it surprised me how quickly my giant grew in size, becoming as large as myself in very little time. I would sneak away from my responsibilities, my spouse and my children to see my giant. I didn't notice my giant's arms becoming stronger and my personality blending with it until I tried to leave my giant one day and I was not allowed to go without the promise that I would return soon. And I always did. My life now began to mean nothing to me. My giant was all that was important. My family and friends called to me. I did not hear them. Only the voice of my giant calling me. And I obeyed. My life became miserable, unless I was with my giant. Oh, my giant was big now, really huge, and expensive to keep. When I had no more money, I would lie, steal, and cheat to do whatever was necessary to keep my giant, because away from it, I felt like death itself. Finally, a few years later, sitting in jail, after violating every human and sacred thing I could, I realized my giant, my once upon a time pleasure, was trying to destroy me. I asked for help. I pleaded for my monster to go away. Each escape I tried to make was meaningless. My family tried to help in vain. I began to hate myself and my giant and even believing it would be a blessing to die. 
My giant took everything I ever cared for from me and was in the process of taking my life itself when God, my creator, intervened with many signs, messages, and handwriting on the wall. It was finally made clear to me that I must kill or be killed. And so, after much attempted bargaining, excuses, running, hiding, and procrastinating, I have learned to recognize my giant for what it really is and have turned to face it. My giant is huge now because I have fed it well. My giant has become a part of me, a part I love and hate and must separate myself from if I wish to remain alive. My giant smiles at me, calls me, and begs me to let it love me to death. I listen no more. I am arming and preparing myself for battle. It's going to be a long and difficult battle. My giant is powerful and knows my weaknesses all too well. It's a battle to death and has to be this way because I will not be free to be me until my giant is completely gone. God is going to help me fight my giant and on its tombstone, I will write, here lies my giant cocaine, 1970 to 1988. Praise the Lord, amen. You know, Mary, by God's grace, went back to school. She went to MIT and got a master's degree and graduated with honors and was teaching in a Christian school. Shortly after that, her parents took Karen and I to Israel. We went to the Valley of Elah. The tour guide, after we all got back on the bus, read Mary's Giant, and you can imagine there wasn't a dry eye on there. These stories are real, folks. So is ours. 